the teachers were so diligent and so committed. They were there early in the morning. They were there late in the evenings if you needed help. They knew a lot about our home situations, you know, where we went to church. They knew what we did, you know, in the evenings because we were like a community. And I'm sure that that impacted um, the kind of teacher that I eventually became because they were so knowledgeable about who we were. That was Mrs. Lillian Carter. She started teaching in her hometown of Richmond, Virginia in 1964. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Derek Allridge, and I'm a professor in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia, and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement Project, and I'm joined today by two of my colleagues. My name is Lindsay Jones, and I'm an independent scholar living and working in Richmond, Virginia. I research the history of African-American education and the history of Black girlhood in the United States South, and I'm a research affiliate of the Teachers in the Movement Project. And I'm Alex Hires, an assistant professor in the history of U.S. education at the University of Utah and a research affiliate with the Teachers in the Movement Project. Let's jump right in then. We're going to hear about her early teaching career. So how did you become a teacher? How did that happen? Did you uh, start yeah. an education course? It's a great story. Um, the summer of my senior year, when I was headed back to Pennsylvania, my mother asked the question, what do you need to do to student teach? And I said, student teach? Why would you suggest that? I'm not going to teach. I'm going to law school. What is this about? She said, because before you graduate, I would like for you to have those educational courses, um, you know, under your belt. And so I, I was not happy with that, but that was my mother. And so I did just as she um, instructed me. And I I saw my guidance counselor and she told me I needed three courses in order to student teach in the spring semester. And I had plenty of room on my schedule for those three courses. So I signed up and qualified then to student teach in the spring semester. That's another story. They assigned me at Middletown High School to the basketball coach. The varsity basketball coach was my supervising teacher. And so when I got there the first day, I went and introduced myself to him. And he said, I'm so glad to meet you. You may find me in the gym if you need me. I thought it was going to be a week of observation. And then I would do some work and he'd observe me and all of that, none of that happened. The first day he went to the gym and instructed me to send for him if I needed him, but if I didn't need him, don't bother him because it was basketball season and he was very busy. So that was a rude awakening. They threw me in, threw me to the dogs and the die was cast, (laughs) that was it. it. It was really a great experience and My mother didn't have to do much when I got home for spring break. She just said, there's a new school being built and it's going to open in September. 
And I hear the principal is going to be Arnold Henderson, and he is at your church. So I want you to have an interview with him. And he hired me on spring break. So, um, so much for law school and all the rest of it, because I was, (laughs) you know, really determined then to teach. So the school where you did your student, your student teaching, was it desegregated or segregated? Oh, it was very desegregated. Um, It was a a very transient community. There was, I believe, a military base around the area. And so the students were in and out all the time because of being military families. And it was very diverse, very diverse, much more diverse than, than I had seen in Richmond but uh, more diverse than Elizabethtown, where I was one of seven Black students the whole time I was there. Never more than seven Black students. Yes. So what was that transition like coming from a desegregated school where you did your student teaching and then going on to uh, the new Mosby Junior High School, which was a segregated school? Was there a difficult Mm -hmm. transition for you or you fit right in? Right, because my schooling in Richmond had been just like that. I had, had, you know, been in schools with all Black students. I quickly reverted, I guess, back to what I had known. So it, it was not a problem for me at all. And I just was so fortunate in that first experience. I had some wonderful students and the principal was so, you know, accommodating because he had a lot of first-year teachers there, a lot of rookies, and um, he had, you know, played an instrumental role in all of our lives, I'm sure. You know, even though it was, um, the students were low-income and were from the area of the public housing and all that, he dictated that we visit in their homes and that we um, establish relationships with the parents and that we just, you know, be involved, immersed completely in the community. And so we didn't know any better. So we did what he said. And um, he didn't play, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. And that was the way we did it. He said, go into the homes. And we went into the homes. We did whatever he said. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard so many teachers bring up deep connections like these to the communities that they serve. Just to get a little more context on the story, what was the process of desegregation like in Richmond? So the most prominent stories of school desegregation that we know from Virginia center on the school districts where schools closed rather than um, adhere to the Brown decision. Places like Prince Edward County, Charlottesville and Norfolk. And so Richmond differs from those locales in that they never closed their schools. That does not mean that they were interested in desegregating or integrating their schools, but they took more of a passive uh, resistance route to school desegregation. And so they sort of went through uh, a couple different stages of school desegregation. Between 1956 and 1965, there was a a policy known as containment within the city where token numbers of black students were desegregating schools. And then when the courts sort of pushed on the school districts in order to desegregate, 
Richmond and other parts of Virginia transitioned toward what was called freedom of choice between 1966 and 1971. And in that period, black students were applying to all white schools and you saw more school desegregation occurring. And that happened until 1971. And the final stage um, of school desegregation was known as busing. And the reason that they had to use busing in order to desegregate the schools was because the housing in places like Richmond had long been segregated. Um, and those two things are inextricably linked um, both at this time period and now. So Richmond had a segregated school system but they built a brand new middle school for black students. That might be surprising to some folks. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Mosby came to be built? States across the South, including Virginia, uh, engaged in equalization campaigns where white politicians in the state would attempt to uphold the farce of separate but equal by building new facilities and equalizing teacher salaries in order to make things appear as equal. And while that occurred before Brown versus Board of Education, in Richmond in 1964, Mosby Junior High and Elementary School opened. And at the time when the school opened, it operated with over 2,000 students, um, which is in the midst of when Miss Lillian Carter um, is teaching at the school. Interesting. And for another perspective, and for a few more stories about the desegregation process in Richmond, check out our episode on Mrs. Judith Anderson. Okay, let's turn back to the interview with Mrs. Carter and hear a little bit about how she centered Black history in her curriculum. Um, so either in high school or growing up, do you remember your teachers or schools having Negro History Week or Black History Month celebrations or observances? Right. Definitely. I had, um, I can remember uh, Negro History Week week mm -hmm. as a student myself. I can remember that. But I can also remember teaching where we observed the whole month of February, not just one week in February, but the whole month of February that was in my early teaching career when I was a social studies teacher. But when I started at John Marshall in 1977, I was English then. And I really missed the contact I had with social studies. So my students always felt like they were taking two courses in one because I was incorporating so much. And I just pulled out some things on, on this study guide that I used to hand my students, I have a heritage hint that I put on each one. And this particular one from uh, February 23rd, 2004, Emmett Till did not realize that in 1955 Mississippi, one could not make a questionable comment to a white woman. His brutal murder marked the beginning of the civil rights movement. So every time I passed out a, study guide sheet is what I call this, I would have on there this heritage hint. And what I list as one of the goals of the students, goals and objectives, is that they will write an essay about an African-American hero 
who suffered an atrocity. So that was one of their assignments over that two week period. Uh, they will recite, lift every voice from, from memory for test credit. So I, you know, I was an English teacher incorporating much social studies. And in 2004, when I retired, that was one of the reasons I did because the, this thing with benchmarks and blueprints and SOLs did not allow room for some of this kind of integration, you know, of subjects. And I thought it's time, it's time to go. So I just, I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't justify some of the things like the heritage hint on um, Emmett Till and writing about an atrocity. Somebody, you know, it wasn't room for that. I had to do other kinds of things. So I thought it's time to go. I appreciated hearing Ms. Carter talk about her strategies for incorporating Black history, both into her work as a social studies teacher, but also into her work teaching English. Dr. Allridge and Dr. Hires, you were both public school teachers. And I wonder if you could speak to the major pedagogical differences in teaching English or language arts versus social studies and some of the challenges that a teacher might encounter while trying to incorporate black history across the curriculum. Yes, I think it doesn't matter what the field or discipline is. You can integrate black history in any course. Uh, be it science, mathematics, language arts, uh, English, social studies, or history. You know, I really want to encourage people to think about that. You know, how am I going to integrate Black history in the curriculum? And when I was teaching, I was a, a social studies and history teacher, but I often use uh, English text to convey history. So one text that really sticks out to me would be coming of age in Mississippi. The book was written by a young person named Ann Moody who came of age during the civil rights movement, eventually became a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, met many of the activists in the civil rights movement and she was active herself. That book is perhaps one of the best pieces of literature that I've used in the classroom that would be appropriate for both for English class as well as a social studies or history class. Picking up on another example for students, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad is a historical text, but also brings science fiction. And so I think that would be an example of an opportunity where you could really, in social studies or English, engage with questions about fact or fiction and different genres um, in literature. And I think that it's also important to bring up um, at this point, too, that teachers need to be mindful of our current political context and to fight against the silencing of topics related to racism. And so I think that teachers need to be creative and find ways to bring those issues up when possible and to be courageous in the ways that they do so. To tell this story about when I used to travel with students when we had the grant, we traced the Underground Railroad. That's what we really did. And we, we went from um, Richmond to uh, Windsor, Ontario, Canada, where the um, 
underground railroad, according to some, actually ended, but we don't know. But anyway, um, we could see the Detroit River and um, you could look over it off. Of course, the slaves um, actually walked through the river in order to cross over into Canada because that meant freedom for them. But um, the kids learned so, so much as we, you know, stopped in Boston on one trip and and I went to um, Beacon Street and saw safe houses and all that. They they were influenced, you know, by all of that. So I apparently, you know, English teacher, but I never got away from the importance of, you know, the role of society and the um, interrelatedness of what was going on, you know, in society at the time. And I just felt compelled to bring that in. This is so remarkable that she was able to take her students on this trip following the Underground Railroad. Are grants like this one she mentioned still available to teachers? Yes, there are still grants available um, from organizations such as the National Council for the Social Studies, the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, to mention a few. Um, It is worth noting that this work to even apply to these programs requires significant resources beyond regular teaching. And so that really speaks to um, the commitment that Mrs. Carter had to her craft in order to keep um, learning herself, but also to provide those opportunities for her students, both within and beyond the classroom. If teachers aren't able to plan a big border crossing trip like the one Ms. Carter describes, what resources are out there for local Black history? First and foremost, I would recommend that they uh, contact their local branch of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. The association, as we call it, was founded in 1916, and it has branches at many cities and small towns throughout the country. And these branches are connected to the national organization, which is located in Washington, DC. And so these local branches will be able to provide teachers with information on what's happening on the national level, but also give them some insights about what's occurring locally. So that's the first thing I would do. Another, teachers might be surprised to find that local libraries have often have a ton of information on Black history in particular communities. So we encourage you to reach out to public libraries. And I've personally seen where libraries have um, really invested a lot of time in collecting sources or resources on African-American history. So I really encourage you to reach out to those organizations. And documents are not the only source of local history. Local history actually is walking around in your community in the form of individuals who are, you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and older, who can tell you a lot about the history of their community. So we encourage uh, students to reach out to um, individuals they may know through their local churches, that their parents may know, to collect Black history, to learn more about Black history. Thanks for that. Now let's go back to the interview with Mrs. Carter and hear about some of her other pedagogical strategies. The black and white composition book was my best friend. And 
I bought one for everybody and it stayed in my room and they all had wide ruled and um, they had topics they had to write. And I had a timer and I set my timer at the tardy bell. You could not be late to class because if you're late to class, you are missing time for writing. Writing is important because that converts to a test grade at some point. And it, you know, it was to their advantage in so many ways. I had to have something that was like a buffer grade that would kind of offset what you may have fallen down in in your you know, performance on a test based on your reading. I just really feel like that's, you know, that's what happens in so many classrooms. People don't realize that students have to have something written in there that's gonna give them a good grade no matter what their ability level is at, you know, because it's so important to the students to feel this measure of success at some point. And this virtual, you know, I'm so worried about virtual and, and what's going to happen with our children. I just feel like some ground is going to be lost. And so, um, you know, I'd say at my church every week that we're going to be the ones that have to offer support and bolster our students through this period, because how through the computer screen are they able to love their students because to teach students to be effective, to have an impact, you have got to show them love. And love is as simple as if they need a tissue, they know where they can get it. But I always had mints, I had tampons, I had safety pins, I had quarters cough drops. I always had whatever I felt the students would need. I had the day's paper. So many did not take a daily paper and I did. And I brought my paper to school because in some classes they needed a current event article and they don't take the paper. Where are they going to get an, a current event article? You know, you ask them to produce these things. What are you doing to make sure they can produce them? You know, that's something that you'd probably take for granted, but it was something our students didn't always have. But they knew once they got to school, they could come to my classroom and get it. And um, I used to cook for my students. I used to have a first period class and our high school hours were really early. Like at, the first class came in at 7.20. And so they would come to first period and they have had no breakfast, you know. And so, you know, a treat would be that sometimes I would do sausage biscuits before I got to work and bring them with me. And my students were just like, oh, she cooked for us today, you know. So it was way above and beyond, but it just was a way for me to let them know they were so important to me that going the extra mile was what I wanted to do because they meant that much to me, you know. This is such an impactful story. What do you think current teachers should take away from this interview and Mrs. Carter's career? She talks at some point that school standardization and the testing movement were some of the factors that pushed her out. So when I reflect on this interview, it makes me think from a policy and reform standpoint, 
how do we create a system that supports teachers like Mrs. Carter in their creativity and doesn't push her out because she wants to do all of this work beyond the classroom, wants to get these grants, wants to provide experiences that embody these historical events and thinking about as teachers, not only advocating in the classroom for your students, but also to become involved at the school board level and also thinking about issues that may not uh, to them on the surface seem related, but housing issues and food insecurity. But I also think at the same time that it shouldn't be up to teachers to be the ones to fill all of these these roles and to be the ones that are also reformers and policymakers because we already ask a lot of teachers um, and in a lot of cases they are are not paid well enough whether you're in Virginia or any other state across this country. That's absolutely true. Right now in the Richmond Public Schools, the teachers are organizing for collective bargaining rights. They're attempting to win collective bargaining rights right now as they are being overworked and underpaid in this pandemic. Currently, my child is on quarantine and her teacher's entire classroom is is quarantined right now. And so she let us know as soon as her students were pulled out, okay, I'll be teaching your kids virtually. And now that, that I don't have to be in front of kids physically, they have also assigned me to a virtual preschool. The, the kind of pressure on teachers to do a lot with a little hasn't changed. And it's a shame that, you know, someone so experienced and so innovative got pushed out that way, but I'm sure, you know, so many colleagues could have benefited from her experience. What most stuck out with you about this interview with Mrs. Carter? What do you admire most about her? Uh, what I'll always remember about this interview with Mrs. Carter was her presence. Uh, she certainly embodied the concept of what multicultural education scholars call the warm demander, someone who really wants to meet you where you are and is warm towards you, but also expects a lot out of you. And I found myself as the interviewer uh, wanting to perform so as to not disappoint her. It was almost as if I were a student in her classroom. I think what most stuck with me about the interview was how Mrs. Carter describes wanting to be a lawyer and wanting to be an ambassador and never, you know, until her mother suggested it, having thought of education, but I appreciated hearing how once she got in the classroom, you know, there was no going back. You know, what I appreciate about so many of these interviews with educators during the civil rights movement is just the passion that they had for teaching and, you know, the certainty that, that many of them speak with that being there in the classroom with their students was the most important, most appropriate place for them to have been during that time, that that was the most important role and the best role that they could have fulfilled at that time. Teachers are, are really important. And to hear her speak with just the authority of knowing that she filled that important role in her community, 
and touch so many lives doing it, it's, it's just very enjoyable as a researcher to, to hear. I'm Dr. Derek Allridge, and I am joined today by Dr. Lindsay Jones and Dr. Alex Tigers. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. Our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner-McGee. Thanks for listening.